Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Pete Rizzo, reporter, editor, and Bitcoin historian. We talk about altcoins and specifically his article on Forbes arguing against them. Pete tells us about his thinking in writing the article, the importance of moral arguments, and his pivot to historically documenting Bitcoin. Pete Rizzo, welcome back. How's everything going? Good, man. Thanks for having me. You know, stirring up stuff on Bitcoin Twitter as usual. Mm, indeed you are. It's, you have a fairly controversial or I what I thought would be controversial article on Forbes against cryptocurrency, the ethical argument for Bitcoin maximalism. Now, for those people that haven't read the article, can you kind of summarize it for us? Yeah, sure. I'll just give a quick introduction to myself. So yeah, Pete Rizzo, been a cryptocurrency journalist going on nine years since since 2013 when I stumbled into the space. Uh, originally was, you know, sort of the founding editor over at Coindesk, uh, now editor over at Bitcoin Magazine and editor at large at the Kraken Cryptocurrency Exchange. So, you know, no stranger to the space, been around and seen the evolutions. Yeah, I guess in terms of this article, what I was really trying to get across was, you know, one, you know, I've been looking for kind of an explanation for why I've been increasingly interested in focusing my work on Bitcoin only in a way to, you know, broadcast that to more people, right? So I think that was one of the goals for me for sure. I think the other goals were mostly chipping away at what I would call this sort of idea that, you know, it's okay to be neutral or agnostic to the cryptocurrency market. So I think this is something that we particularly encounter with people who are outside of the Bitcoin community. Myself, I see this in the journalism community, the investor space, you know, this idea that these are all these cryptocurrencies are the same. They're essentially all different like stocks and bonds. There's nothing really different about any of these things. And therefore, it's okay for you, or or it's actually morally correct for you to have a neutral outlook on it, right? Why wouldn't you be neutral to cryptocurrencies? Mm. There's almost this assumed neutrality on the space, right? Where if you have an opinion, or you you do have a thesis that one currency, let's just say in this case, Bitcoin, is better than the others, you must be carrying some sort of an inherent bias, because, you know, to Mm. be unbiased, that would be neutral. So I, I think it really started with that, right, is, is just chipping away mm. at, at this idea that I saw where, you know, that I just felt increasingly sort of felt was untrue, right? I think for a while, I think it was true that, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, you know, were, were new and, and novel. And I just think we know a lot more about them now. And I would argue, I think at this juncture of where we are in understanding, you know, the phenomenon, which I think is really the only way to kind of class the whole thing, is that we know enough to know that I think Bitcoin has properties that ensure user rights to a higher degree than other cryptocurrencies. And I think that was the argument that I was trying to put out there. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point because a lot of reporters, I think, think that it's very neutral to sort of like not have a favorite cryptocurrency, though. So they'll treat Dogecoin the same way they would Bitcoin and pretend they're at like sort of the same level. Yeah, I think it's a failure of education, right? And it's a failure of that profession to adequately respond to the task of covering the field, right? So I'll just, you know, state state bluntly that when I started as a journalist in 2013, obviously, the barrier to entry was a lot lower, right? My first article about Bitcoin was about a local restaurant in, in Massachusetts that accepted Bitcoin, right? So there wasn't anything special or novel that I was writing other than, you know, Bitcoin was being used as a payment method in this case, right? So I think the there isn't really any specific knowledge you need to be Bitcoin or cryptocurrency journalist. In a lot of cases, you know, these are kids who are fresh out of school, never had a writing job. That was certainly 
you know, defined <laughs> me. And, you know, it's not like early on, I, as I am now, where I spend a lot of my time on the Bitcoin talk forums and asking kind of questions about the technology that wasn't really encouraged, right? It was find the next story, who's the next big merchant that's going to accept Bitcoin, what are famous people saying about Bitcoin, right? There's this sort of surface level sort of intellectual, you know, idea of what news is, right? And it sort of never gets questioned, right? It's just, and you can see that even today, right? Big VC says something about Bitcoin, oh, well, he's a big VC, so he must know what he's talking about, right? So again, you sort of have this idea that it's neutral, you know, you should be neutral to cryptocurrencies. And then I would, I would say even deeper than that, I think there's this second order assumption that's also problematic is that the cryptocurrency market itself is a functioning mediator <laughs> between cryptocurrencies. Mm. So I think it's two mm. things. It's like one, that they're all neutral. And I think it's mm. two, it's that like the cryptocurrency market itself is actually giving us meaningful data about what's going on, right? And and combined, mm. I think when you when you actually tease those two things apart, you start to understand the assumptions that are driving, you know, quote, the mainstream lens on Bitcoin mm. and cryptocurrency. And I think it's important to start there, right? For many people, whatever it is that we're talking about here, it starts with them logging on a CoinMarketCap every day or Masari mm. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so you bring up a bunch of good points there. But one thing that I wanted to like drill a little deeper on is your sort of assertion that a lot of reporters in this space and probably in others, to be quite frank, they only really look at the surface level and you know, like they, they just want, I guess, a lot of clicks or uh, they're, they're under pressure to produce a lot of stories. So the publication has lots of them. Uh, would you say there's an incentive problem there? What's going on? Why don't they do more deep dives as you've been doing the last year or so? Well, I mean, look, it took me a long time, right? It, like, it took mm. me, I think, being in the right places, asking the right questions, and then being confronted with information that I didn't quite understand. I think that mm. It's important to maintain empathy with people, right? I, I think mm. that most people are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do a good job, right? But it's it's mm. really larger sort of systemic things that, that often fail, right? So I think, you know, when I interact with the journalism community these days, I try to be more forward in saying, you know, I support Bitcoin only. I've been here for eight years and I actually think the only interesting thing, things that are going on are going on on Bitcoin and, and here's why. And, and a lot of people don't follow up and sort of ask me about that argument. Uh, some do, right? So in response to this piece, I actually did get a number of other journalists kind of back channeling and sort of asking me a little bit more, you know, about my position. I had a really great chat with the editor over at the block. And, you know, he mm -hmm. is somebody I've been trying to get on this argument for a while. And it seemed like he, you know, had had progressed further. I, th I think you just have to give people time, right? In the same way that mm -hmm. people gave me time, right? I wasn't always someone who understood, you know, things to the level I did now. And it took people arguing with me, yelling with me, you know, and answering questions. And, you know, sort of trying to adjust the frame and lens that I was looking at things, right? I, I think that's all you can do. I don't know if there's anything more than the hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then otherwise, just making arguments, right? And I think it's also important to understand that as Bitcoin evangelists, you know, we are making arguments and some of our arguments are not super effective, right? So mm. when I was writing this article, I actually think I've developed a loose framework, right? Where I think there's really essentially all arguments for Bitcoin maximalism, you can kind of divide them into like, essentially, I'd say like four or five buckets, right? So there's economic arguments for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the best money. You could look at the proper properties of money and see that Bitcoin, you know, has more of these properties or has properties in a better way than other monies. There's this idea that Bitcoin is a better network. It's the most decentralized. The cost of running the node is, is the lowest. There's all sorts of different metrics that you can use to quantify that. Uh, you can look at the launch. Bitcoin relied on conditions that won't repeat again. You know, you have this immaculate conception idea. And then you have this, you know, concept that I think you were actually one of the first people to 
really talk about or introduce is that Bitcoin is sort of aligned to human rights or uh, liberal values or something that we would consider morally good, right? That it's mm. it, it somehow, in, you know, we as humans are biased towards expanding our own rights and capabilities. And Bitcoin is actually ensuring those at a higher level than other technologies, right? So that, so that mm. Bitcoin actually isn't something that you should support you know, inherently, it's you should support Bitcoin because it better aligns with the values that you already support. And I think that's the most powerful argument for me, because I think when you look at the economic, the network and like the launch arguments, it's not like really always clear why you can't measure these things or that other cryptocurrencies aren't always already competing with Bitcoin on these Mm. things, right? When you clone a cryptocurrency, you know, like say, let's just say Dogecoin, you brought up that example. Uh, Dogecoin shares many of the same properties as Bitcoin, right? As money, right? Like, and, and if you were to actually grade Bitcoin and Dogecoin in, in terms of the properties of money, right? Just by innate, by being a terrible copy of Bitcoin, you're immediately something that shares a lot of its properties, right? So I think it's hard for people to understand those arguments. They become very comparative. Where I feel like the moral argument for Bitcoin is actually stronger because you're basically saying you should be aligned with Bitcoin because it it, it is actually doing something that you as a human being should already think is good. And mm. therefore, the more you try to understand that or shape your, your world to the, in that way, the more you'll find that Bitcoin is something that you should support. And I think that was the argument that was most effective for me. I mean, certainly I didn't, you know, I've, I've read economic textbooks since finding Bitcoin, but I, I don't know if any of them really would have convinced me on their own, you know, that Bitcoin was somehow better, right? I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't someone who's coming from it from a perspective of, caring about economics or money, you know, in the same way that some people who care about economics and money just inherently care about those things, right? So I think, you know, I would become very reliant on the economic arguments for Bitcoin, would become very reliant on the network arguments for Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is more decentralized than these other things. And I I ultimately just don't think they connect with people, you know, I think they, they could be right and also, you know, just ineffective in terms of helping people understand why Bitcoin is something that should matter to them. Mm. Well, it's interesting because you're, you know, you titled this uh, the ethical argument for Bitcoin. And ultimately, the argument that you end up making is that, you know, fiat money is controlled by, you know, the Federal Reserve, central banks or uh, some oligarchy of people that kind of controls everything within that money. And you basically argue that it's kind of like this rule by majority for a lot of these cryptocurrencies. Can you describe that a little bit better? Yeah, thank you. Uh, That's something that took me a long time to try to figure out. So I think what I ultimately tried to get to with this is that, you know, again, just sort of describing behaviors, right? So you have the idea that that if Bitcoin is moral, if it, it does ensure rights, then then what are those rights, right? And I think in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. you know, you end up thinking about things like you have the irrevocable right to your money, right? That's pretty foundational. Uh, you have the right to review and propose code. You have the right to validate transactions and economic rules. Uh, you have the right to the known money supply and predictable issuance of that money. And then this is the more complicated one, but I think you have the right to dissent from the majority within Bitcoin. I think that's, if I could spew out a rough Bitcoin bill of rights, I, I think it's <laughs> those things, right? These are the things that we think Bitcoin gives. And then if you look at the other cryptocurrencies, you sort of start to ask the questions, well, it's like, to what extent do they also uphold those rights? And I think one of the interesting things becomes like the more you look at other cryptocurrencies, I think the more that you find that they are willing to, and this is the wording I think here, like I'd use very carefully is it's almost like they seem very willing to replace the authority of government within money, right? Start with fiat mm-hmm. and fiat governments are the, are endowed with the authority to create and issue money 
on the basis that we elect these officials and they're acting in our interests, right? That's sort of the starting basis point. Uh, Bitcoin innovated on that by giving individuals the right to this known money supply and the right to be able to audit it and to then participate in that economy. Uh, so then what do other cryptocurrencies do, right? And the most that I think I can say is that they seem to be okay giving up these rights to the market or almost putting the market in a place where rather than a government guaranteeing your rights, the market guarantees your rights. And I would just say that I don't know enough to like have a sophisticated opinion on that because it took me a long time to get to the place where I think I can can actually state that. But I do think mm. it's that it's different, right? If, if in Bitcoin, you have an absolute guarantee that when you have a Bitcoin, right, when you own Bitcoin and you go into a coma for 100 years, or you're, let's just say you're Hal Finney, you're, you're cryogenically frozen. When mm. you wake up, you're going to have access to your Bitcoin, right? That is the level of the irrevocable right to money uh, that you have in Bitcoin. And again, like, is that present in other cryptocurrencies? I think the answer is no, because when you mm. look at how they function, they oftentimes seem as though they operate where, you know, majorities can form and then majorities then can uh, impose their will on others uh, for certain things. So you, you have to kind of go back to historical examples, you know, and I'm happy to do that and to why this is the case. But I think oftentimes when observing other cryptocurrencies, you find that they operate in such a way where, you know, changes are made by a majority coming together and then a majority actually invalidating the rights of those other people. And in those mm. cases, you know, how you would technically refer to this is, you know, if there's a fork, right? If there is some people who are, you know, continuing on one version of the cryptocurrency and other people who are essentially left with the option to economically, you know, continue in some other way, right? To try to, you know, continue the original chain, they're sort of being forced to, you know, bear the cost of that, right? That you you can't really say that they are it's questionable, I think, whether they are being endowed with any choice in that situation. So again, I think not to get too technical at the beginning, but I think in Bitcoin, you know, the way that this system has evolved, we have developed in such a way where when we make upgrades to Bitcoin, you know, the majority does need to form and a majority of people do need to actually enact a feature, but the minority doesn't actually have to follow. And I think that's something that absolutely does not exist in other cryptocurrencies. And it's actually really worth thinking about because I think dramatically changes these types of systems, right? So when you look at claims like Ethereum is money or that other cryptocurrencies are competing against Bitcoin, they start to seem really starkly different to me when you look at it from the lens of user rights. Because again, when you look mm. at it from the lens of economics, it's hard to make it clear why that matters to someone, right? Like, so Bitcoin has a twenty-one finite 21 million supply. Okay, maybe Ethereum doesn't. Maybe that's their choice. So maybe people who don't care can use Ethereum. Sure. But I think that becomes a very nihilistic argument, especially when those people aren't really understanding that they're trading the right to something that they have in Bitcoin, and they are entering a financial system in which there are weaker rights. So I think to your question about why does this matter is I think, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are ultimately systems that, you know, uh, enforce some form of user rights, and you can call those financial rights. And I think if you feel strongly about rights, uh, you should probably want to support systems in which, you know, humans have more rights and you should be, uh, you know, more, more suspectful of systems where people have less rights. And I think that's, to me, a more moral lens to look at the industry. Yeah, so this reminds me of sort of like forms of government or something like that. And I, I guess this is kind of what we're talking about, because, you know, a, Pretty much every coin other than Bitcoin has some form of governance that sort of like decides on the rules of the coin. But I mean, 
Would you say that this is something like, you know, journalists, you know, treating communism and democracy the same way and saying, oh, you know, I, I want to be neutral. I'm not for either one or something like that. Like, does feel uh, something like that to me, the way you're describing it. Yeah, I think so. And I actually had a passage in here that was more kind of about using the communism democracy analogy. And I know that was something we've talked about. And I, I think why the communism democracy analogy makes sense is because I think people understand that within political systems, the, the nature of the structure of the systems like dictates their relationship between the individual and that nation, state, or, or body, right? So I think it's an example that really works because people understand it pretty intuitively, right? There's a relationship to power and people, you know, again, like we've grown up as children and, and a lot of the stories that we read are about relationships to power, whether that's religion or whether stories that we read about, you know, folk tales, like most of them have some sort of like king type structure. And we grow up learning about how democracy is formed, at least if you're, you know, in a Western country. So I think people are very familiar with the idea that, you know, you as a citizen have some relationship to power, right? So, you know, you could argue then sort of, you know, is it, could you possibly be neutral on political systems? And I think most people would actually argue you can. Like, and why can't you be agnostic to political systems is because, you know, their nature of those systems is such that, you know, they put the user or the individuals participating in them in some situation where, you know, their rights or freedoms are influenced by that system, right? And I think most mm -hmm. people are inherently very biased towards Western style democracies. I mean, I think that's where a lot of the initial hesitance towards Bitcoin as an idea even comes from, right? Is that I, and I think there's a part of this article that, you know, says essentially there's sort of three viewpoints. There's the Bitcoin maximalists, there's the cryptocurrency agnostics, and the Bitcoin deniers. And I think that from the standpoint of the Bitcoin deniers, I mean, I think their argument has always been pretty clear, right? They just don't think the private market should issue money or that anyone should issue money or there should be any is money issuance outside of government. And they think that, the democratic process works and that elected officials represent people. And therefore, you know, that system to them is fair and moral. So, you know, kind of looking at it through that lens, you can kind of sympathize with the Steve Hankies and other people who, you know, even though their arguments are pretty terrible, they, they sort of come at it. At least their worldview is like very clear, right? And, and helpful because it's very well defined, right? So Bitcoin is clearly not that, right? And in Bitcoin, we know that we are joining a new financial system, you're opting out and you're opting into that financial system. And, you know, we're never going to revoke that, right? So again, anyway, I think like back to the, the communism argument, again, you, it starts to be a useful way to look at these systems, right? Because again, people are not inherently neutral to political systems, they understand why a user is highly affected based on the organization of the system. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, like most journalists even would probably say, they're biased towards like Western style democracies because they believe that they're aligned with human freedoms. So then sort of the next argument that sort of becomes something that I think becomes sort of logical is that, well, if Bitcoin ensures human rights to a greater degree than Western style democracies, and you know, you for whatever reason are someone who is aligned with those in most cases, uh, why do you not support Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin mm. actually is more aligned with human freedoms. I think all of, and again, I think that's an argument that you've made really beautifully. Alex Gladstein has done as well. But I think one of the the issues with that is that argument is often only made against the fiat system. Mm. And I think one of the reasons why is it's very hard to define the cryptocurrency system in aggregate, right? Because mm. it's, it's very new. It's filled with a lot of different projects. A lot of them are, you know, vastly different. Well, I mean, you could debate that point. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's like behaviors and patterns and like feelings like within that market that are hard to pin down, right? Like I would say mm. even like when you said other cryptocurrencies 
have some style of governance, I would actually push back and say, like, most of them, yes, that's true. Most of them do. But most of them, you know, willfully, you know, uh, make that very opaque and are, have no conscious, like, understanding mm-hmm. of what their government governance process is. And that's where I think, you know, if you look at how these systems are developing, I think, one, you have to look at Bitcoin as being a dis- different and distinct system from the cryptocurrency ecosystem. I think this article is like an attempt to start defining, okay, well, what is the other cryptocurrencies ecosystem? What is What are the things that separate it? And then mm-hmm. is that system problematic or why would it be problematic? And, you know, mm-hmm. as the more that I thought about it, I think one of the foundational things is that I think two things, I think within the cryptocurrency at large, you know, demographic, I think there's a much different attitude towards user rights than in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And I think two, there's a much different attitude towards the market or the idea that the market is some sort of form of authority. And I think Mm. both of those viewpoints are really present in the cryptocurrency agnostic crowd. They really Mm. haven't been addressed in any significant way. And even myself, I mean, it took me a long time to be able to articulate it like that. So I'm actually excited to kind of sit down and think about that, see Mm. where I can kind of tease out that those findings. Okay, well, so let's get into a little bit more of the practical, because I think we've been sort of like talking about it at a higher level and conceptual level. But you mentioned that, you know, there were altcoins where minority rights were sort of not respected, or, you know, uh, incidences where, you know, you might have been, you know, part of a minority that didn't want to do something, but you were forced into doing something that the network sort of forced you into doing something that you didn't want to do. Can you give some examples of that? So the <laughs> listeners can kind of yeah, understand sure. what you're talking about? Yeah, so the classic example would be an Ethereum, you know, early on, there was the the Ethereum, Ethereum classic split. I mean, you know, essentially, what happened is you had a large smart contract, you know, accrue a tremendous amount of capital proportional to the market cap of the currency at the time. Eventually, that smart contract was exploited by an unknown attacker. And, you know, the community at that time put a lot of political pressure on the developers and the various members of the ecosystem to act in some way, right? And I think what was really clouded at the time, and the more that I've sat with that event, you know, I think the more confusing and morally dubious it becomes, like the more you think about it, is essentially what happened is a group of people who felt, you know, that their rights of the users of this contract were more important than other people is they essentially petitioned, you know, the network or the market or however you want to call it, and essentially argued that this user's rights should be removed, right? So this this uh, individual who exploited the contract, who rightfully claimed money, right? Like ha- now owned the money through whatever, for whatever reason, right? He was the holder of the money and they chose to invalidate his rights. And so I spent a lot of time like kind of reading like the literature again from that period. And I think what was interesting to me, and this is where I sort of car- started going down that rabbit hole of like, okay, you know, maybe the market is is really where this is, this comes in, and you find that the justification for that was really, oh well, you know, let's just let the market decide. We'll just let the market decide whether this individual should have the right to the money that they hold. Um, and yeah. I think when you, you know, again, at the time when I was reporting on it, and certainly I was happening in real time, I don't even know if many people sort of saw it that way to the extent that it was, you know, that was the lens to view it. I don't know how widely articulated it was at the time, but look, that, I mean, that's common with, you know, historical events is that, you know, sometimes we'll find over with time that we gain a new understanding of things. And I think that the more you look at that event, you know, and now we have two chains. We have the Ethereum blockchain and the original Ethereum blockchain, which continues as Ethereum Classic. And the people who chose to continue supporting that individual's right to their money that, you know, that they had continued to live on another blockchain. So essentially, 
you know, the cost was imposed on them to essentially start another cryptocurrency. They, they had to continue and actually convince enough exchanges to list this coin and create a new economy around it. So you start to like really think about, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it's sort of a canon, like if let's just say every time someone used Bitcoin in a ransomware attack, you know, you would have a large amount of stakeholders try to lobby to, to invalidate that action, mm. right? I think the excuses at the time that were sort of given were one, you know, oh, we can let the market decide, which I think says a lot about the attitude of people in cryptocurrency to user rights, right? They seem to think mm. that the market is capable of serving as some authority. And, you know, ultimately, I think that, you know, we've seen how that played out, right? The, the minority had to bear the cost of, you know, uh, continuing that chain. And essentially, you know, those people who decided to dissent, right, they decided they didn't want to go along with the majority were punished, right? They actually mm. bore an economic cost for their decision. And so I think that's a really interesting event to look at. I, some people choose to kind of view it as ancient history, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, Ethereum was a beta project, and they made the argument at the time that, you know, this was a beta project. And, you know, until they completed their roadmap, you know, they, they had to take extensive circumstances. But I feel like these are all the arguments where, you know, you start to see why there's political forces at work within these cryptocurrencies. Like if it is possible, if it is true that an incident occurred where some individual within that blockchain lost access to their money, you sort of have to ask, well, how could that have happened? And if the system is sufficiently decentralized, how could such a thing have occurred <laughs> where someone who has seemingly <laughs> had the idea that they had some right no longer had it or had it revoked? And I think it's an interesting incident to think about, not because it like broadly happens, but again, because it's possible, right? And I think one of my fears with the, these sort of cryptocurrency systems is as they get bigger and as more people opt into them because they're attracted by whatever bells and whistles they have is they're not going to realize that they're fundamentally entering systems uh, with weaker user rights, right? And I think in, mm. you know, the decentralized finance ecosystem, so on Ethereum, they're building all these types of applications. In many cases now, they just purely operate by majority rule, right? Like in many cases, there's, you know, an amount of cryptocurrency, and then the users will just vote on things. And, you know, in almost no case can you find an example where, you know, the majority voted for something, and then the minority wasn't sort of like, economically punished for that action, mm -hmm. right? And so I think the economic punishment is interesting because you get this idea of like, okay, well, is it possible to dissent? Like, what is the value of dissent? Like, if you're always mm -hmm. banishing someone from who disagrees with you, uh, then how are you different from a petulant king that is just, you know, kicking someone out <laughs> of the ecosystem, right? And I think that's what unique, what's unique in Bitcoin is you, you do see minority groups that, that do dissent. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and sort of have come to the conclusion that I think I think that is a right. I think that is a right that Bitcoin respects. Like within Bitcoin, you have the right to dissent from majority opinion and that in most other cryptocurrencies, that is not true and that they almost explicitly function by a form of majority rule. And if they do, you sort of have to start asking, like, how is that different from a democratic system in which, you know, a majority can disenfranchise another majority through political elections and other processes? Well, it's interesting that you say the market is deciding and sort of like using the language of democracy. But as far as I can tell, whenever they do do these decisions, it's not necessarily majority of the number of people that are involved in the system. It's really about the number of coins that they hold. So and that, of course, skews towards the people that hold a lot more who tend to have gotten much earlier or maybe even in a pre-mine or something like that. So it's not really uh, like even a democracy per se. It's it's a lot more like a plutocracy where the rich people sort of like rule over everybody else. Would you say that's a fair statement? 
Yeah, I think at this point, like I would say that the one of the reasons I think this argument is particularly strong is because you could say that if if you make the claim that other cryptocurrencies sort of function by majority rule and there is no dissent, I, I would actually say that's a very charitable way to look at what's going on because you know that that would to me to be a sort of a steel man argument where it's uh, you'd say, okay, well you know these are pseudo democratic systems that function by you know, the majority of the market, right? You were to make a very charitable case for that. And I think I even say at the end of the article, I think that there will be people who continue to maintain that those systems are new and novel, or that they're even morally superior to systems where, you know, a democratically elected government uh, will make the decision. I just think that that's where it sort of gets to me, that's the better argument to have, not because what you're saying isn't incorrect. I, I do actually agree with what you're saying, where in a lot of cases on these cryptocurrencies, it is not, not a majority of people who's actually making the decision to invalidate the user rights, or that isn't a position to do so. It is the majority of capital, right? And that's that's usually much more consolidated. But I do think that if you extrapolate it further and say, okay, well, what's the best case scenario here? Well, the best case scenario here would seem to be you would be in a place where some sort of majority you know, was able to form. And then, you know, and, and, you know, you could make the credible claim that the majority, the market, you know, sort of replaces government in terms of being that, that function by which some sort of democracy is enacted, right? I would think that would be a sort of steel man argument for that. I agree with you that it's in practice, not there. But I think the fact to me that the steel man argument of it is so weak is kind of what's interesting. You mm-hmm. know, if, if the best case scenario is you end up recreating sort of the same thing we have with traditional democratic western style democracy governance why are you creating another system like well you've only succeeded in removing the de- the controls that the democratic system put in place and i and again i think most of us you know while we think that democracy we may think that democracy is not working or that it is it's having some issues as an idea i think like most intellectual people think fondly of democracy on, on the whole as like a as an experiment in human, you know, relationships that that move things forward, right? I know that Saifedean might disagree with that. You might argue that, you know, monarchies, you know, are the best form <laughs> of government. But I think most people are on the whole, I think, sympathetic to democracy and what it was trying to achieve. So again, I just kind of come back to it. It's like, you know, you start, even if you're being charitable to the opponent here and saying, okay, well, you know, at best you've sort of recreated you know, you've put people's rights to their money subject again to a democratic structure uh, in which their right to their money can be decided by some democracy or some plurality. Well, then what is it exactly that is new about what you've created? Mm-hmm. Because that would seem to describe exactly the current system that, that Bitcoin was born out of or that, or that tried to escape or that tried to allow people to escape. Mm. And I think that's a great way to frame it. And it is very much a system that even at its absolute most charitably interpreted form is still not any better than the current system that we have. And at its worst, it's actually much worse. So like, I know you're trying to be charitable and steal many and stuff, but like, if you weren't being especially charitable for the sake of argument, what's like, is the altcoin system better than, say, central bank backed fiat money? Like, what's your opinion on that? Like, not steel money. Yeah, I mean, I look, I don't know, like what I don't know. I don't actually have a significant developed answer to that. I don't think I, I don't think that I'm a person who felt myself politic, like very politically inclined towards libertarianism as a whole, right? So I think that I think the way that I would answer that is I I think a certain amount of people who came to Bitcoin 
and then got interested in cryptocurrencies, I think they were sort of looking for a market-based system of rule. So I, I think mm -hmm. from more of an angle as like a historian or someone who like tries to parse broader sociological happenings within the cryptocurrency sector, to me, I think it, it sort of, I, I think you would have had this outcome anyway, right? Or it almost becomes a little bit more understandable where, you know, Bitcoin sort of emerges. It is this new system. We can actually, through you running software, you can instantiate your own right to your money. And I think, you know, if you look at the really early user groups of Bitcoin, you know, you only have, really have three groups. You have sort of open source video game developers. You have, you know, middle management type software people from mostly the Western world, the United States and, and, and Western Europe. And then you have, you know, your early libertarian, like US, you know, style Ron Paul and the Fed type, you know, supporters of Bitcoin uh, early on. And I think they were always people who were predicated to this idea that, you know, that markets, you know, the free market, right? That the every, you know, people think in a perfect world, like, you know, you would leave things up to free market. I don't think I was ever really that ever really appealed to me. Certainly, I've become a lot more of a promoter of free markets, just seeing how Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have evolved over the years. But I think I would answer that question by just saying that, one, I think it makes it a little bit more understandable for me. I don't know if we can come to the conclusion that it's better or worse than central banking. I think that mm. certainly you could argue that at least the fiat system, again, the perspective is the, the chips are easy to follow, right? Like mm. we elect leaders, leaders make decisions, and we assume that those decisions are made in our interest. That mm. is essentially defining how the democratic system works. You can argue whether or not that is what occurs, but I don't think you can argue that that is conceptually what it is designed to do. So my argument then would become with cryptocurrencies is, what is it conceptually designed to do? <laughs> and like, what is it doing? And I would say that in that case, it becomes a lot more unclear. I think the cryptocurrency industry sort of exists in a way. And again, I think there you can look at their attitude towards user rights, right? I think mm. people felt restricted by Bitcoin and therefore they assumed that in order to have more freedom with their money, they needed to create other systems. So I think the cryptocurrency space apart from Bitcoin, it sort of suffers from this weird fallacy of, you know, I should be able to do whatever I want with my money. And if you infringe on me, you're immoral. And that sort of was what happened, I think, you know, during the years when, when me and you were sort of coming up in the industry. And it was, you know, there was all this, you know, allegations of whether we should fork or how these communities should be managed. I think it was the default lens of the conversation was always about it's my money and my right and I have choice. And the cryptocurrency community, I think, evolved to enable that variety of choice and to also align with people who felt that that was morally good. I think that what was never really, uh, you know, uh, entered as a as a counter argument is that in order to do that, people had to give up rights, right? They they gave up <laughs> to, to exit Bitcoin. You're giving up your right to the money supply and the known money supply, the known issuance, but people don't view it that way, right? Again, it was more the immediate satisfaction of you being able to enter a DAP or a smart contract that you were interested in. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think I, I don't know if I have a firm answer to that. I, can, I think how I can answer that is it makes me troubled about the cryptocurrency market because it makes me aware that it's vague. It seems vague or willfully obfuscated or that... I don't know. It's just, you know, I think me and you talked about this well, where one of the critiques mm -hmm. of communism was just sort of this idea about there being an error of error feeling with communism, where just something mm -hmm. felt wrong and how it encouraged, you know, the populace to 
you know, overthrow the government and redistribute property, mm-hmm. right? And that was the foundation on which it was based. And I think to me, when I look at that, and I look at the cryptocurrency market, it feels wrong. It seems like it's, you know, you have this system in where, sure, you can do all these things with your money, but it often comes at a cost of, of people trading away rights that Bitcoin grants them. And I don't think they're always conscious of those rights. And then that troubles me. Mm. Yeah, it, I think maybe the way to sum up what you just said is that conceptually, all coins are kind of like market driven, like you said, it's uh, the market makes the decisions or like kind of tyranny of the majority, if you will. Well, I think um, they think that the market is moral, it, it allows them mm-hmm. to, it's just the presence of a market, you know, does that somehow make a choice less moral, right? So the fact that the mm-hmm. market decided to revoke the person on the Ethereum blockchains right to their money, mm-hmm. how is that more moral than a government doing that? If you're okay with the government doing that, why are you okay with the market doing it? Or sorry, if you're not okay with the government doing it, why are you okay with the market doing it? It's the same activity. You're just Mm. obfuscating the responsibility for it. You're just distributing the responsibility amongst more people. The action that you're taking is is still negative to the individual. And arguably, you've you've decided to take away their rights. (laughs) Well, so conceptually, that's, I think, what you're saying. And that's sort of like the most charitable interpretation. But you know, having, you know, I, I was around at the time and I was reading everything and watching everything. It wasn't played out that way. It was mostly most of that market was just waiting on bated breath to see what Vitalik would say. And based on what Vitalik wrote, like, and he, it wasn't clear which way he was going to go, whether he was going to preserve the code as law principle or not. And I, I still remember like watching a video of a guy explaining, okay, well, if Vitalik says this, then I'm going to support him. If he says the exact opposite, I'm also going to support him. And, you know, it very much became sort of like this, you know, everyone is looking to Vitalik to figure out how they should feel kind of thing. It, it was a very weird kind of like mentality to me, which was like, okay, well, like you don't have an opinion. You're only just sort of like, they almost felt like sports fans, you know, like, mm. it's like, whatever my team does, it was the right thing to do, right? Like, you know, if they released a player, that guy was a bum. If they kept him, he's going to be a superstar. <laughs> like, that's how it felt to me when I remember watching it. So like, the conceptual sort of desire and the actual reality on the ground of what actually happened, I think you can argue were pretty different and how it actually played out, essentially was very much like a dictatorial, like benevolent dictator kind of thing for that particular incident, at least. Well, I I think there was a lot of naivete at the time, right? I think that, you know, again, trying to use empathy here, I I do think that, you know, people felt restricted by what was happening with Bitcoin. Something was going to come out of that. What came out of that Mm -hmm. was Ethereum. And I think that, you know, and this, I think this still pervades Ethereum today, as I still think they like to conceive of what they're doing as something that is not Bitcoin. Mm. I still don't agree with that. I (laughs) prefer to look at Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency market. Uh, You know, my preferred lens would be to look at Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency market at large as competing financial systems and almost Mm. to divide them there and to say Mm. that, okay, in one of these financial systems, you have a clear list of very strong rights to your financial property, or even just property, if you want to whittle it down to that, as you know, Michael Saylor and Nick Carter, you know, do they'll make the argument that Bitcoin ensures property rights. And I think that's, that's totally fair. And then I think you can look at the cryptocurrency industry. And again, if you look at the large mass of cryptocurrencies, again, they seem to behave in 
common ways and they have common attitudes. So I think it's, it's sort of about finding what those are. And I think the more that I can figure it out, it's they seem okay with letting the market decisions. I agree in your specific case that, you know, at the time it did feel like decisions were being made by small groups of people. I mean, certainly people were very de- deferential to the developers and the meritocracy amongst the developers in terms of listening to those folks. You could argue the same thing happened in Bitcoin, right? When Bitcoin faced its own existential questions. I mean, certainly there were people within the meritocracy of Bitcoin were more vocal. And, you know, you kind of faced it. And I, I've spent a lot of time grappling with this question as well as, you know, what happened with Bitcoin and how was authority exerted in the space. But I think ultimately, you know, Bitcoin became a system where dissent was allowed. And I think mm. that is really, if you actually really want to give a lot of credit to the developers, I would spend less time talking about the cryptocurrency developers because I don't think they made the right sequence of choices. I think the more impressive set of choices was made by the Bitcoin developers, who I think at many times could have just made their problems a lot easier by choosing the weaker path of just enacting some popular decision or some popular fork. And they were very early on, I think, to recognize this idea that you know, I think like Adam Back was very early in this as well. He made this this argument, I think, during the early periods of the of the fork wars that Bitcoin was apolitical money, right? This idea that like we don't want uh, decisions being made in which you know majorities can form and majorities can rescind the rights of other users. There's the famous kind of picture of Adam Back at the Hong Kong meeting with the Bitcoin miners, where he's talking about the problems with democracy. I think Adam was always pretty uniquely conscious of this you know, problem where if Bitcoin was not a system where you couldn't, you couldn't have freedom from the majority, then Bitcoin wasn't a unique thing. And I think the fact that they were able to preserve that when so much pressure, you know, was on them to overturn that, I think we should do more to talk about that, right? I think the right to dissent within Bitcoin is something that not a lot of people have actually even practiced, right? The fact that we had SegWit and not everybody used it. We'll have Taproot and not everybody will use it. And ultimately, that Bitcoin is a system where you can still have your Mersha Pescues who continue running Satoshi's original client. They continue to dissent. You know, I think that right to dissent is foundational to Bitcoin. I think it makes Bitcoin something else. And I think in systems where there is no right to dissent. And again, I actually even really want to pause there for a second because I really want to spend more time thinking about that word dissent. I actually don't know if it's the right word. I think... Mm you know, you have to start asking about what is dissent, right? Mm. Do we even have that in democracies? Are you allowed to dissent, right? What does that even mean? I think what that means is that within Bitcoin, as long as you agree to the consensus of the 21 million Bitcoins, as long as you agree that this 21 million uh, supply of Bitcoin is Bitcoin, and that, you know, everyone who the ledger says has Bitcoin owns Bitcoin, uh, that from there, you can, you know, you can chart your own course, right? You as an individual can be free from coercion and then and you can make choice. You can opt in to the structures that you want. Uh, so Bitcoin becomes a financial system that starts to feel a lot more defined by consent, whereas past you know, political systems and financial systems were defined by force. And I think you know, even if you split them that way, where the cryptocurrency ecosystem is an, is an ecosystem where decisions are made by force, and political, you know, collusion and political alignment, and that it continues those aspects of, you know, the fiat system, whereas Bitcoin is a system of a financial system entirely by consent. I think you start building like what's powerful about Bitcoin, and you start talking about the things that I think we actually know about Bitcoin, but are harder to put our finger on because they they seem a little bit more collusive. So I've, I've sort of over the last day and a half been thinking about Bitcoin as a financial 
system of consent? Like, what does that mean? And mm. if other cryptocurrencies are not that, then I think it seems to start feeling a lot easier to just call them something else. And that mm. maybe to argue that they don't, they are not equal financial systems to Bitcoin, that they are somehow worse for certain reasons. I mean, certainly, I think you could make that argument. Hmm. Well, so I think what you're saying is that it's not so much the right to dissent, it's freedom from coercion by the majority, something like that, that uh, that is very much a part of, you know, all coins where you, you can be coerced by the majority, for example, in a hard fork where you can't do the things that were available before the hard fork anymore. Would you say that's maybe a way to look at what you're kind of trying to say? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think that what I'm trying to say is that in Bitcoin, majorities can form and majorities can take actions, but majorities can't make you, the individual, do something, right? Mm. Like, I think that's what's trying to be expressed. And I think, mm. you know, to rely on historical examples again, right, I think there's communities within Bitcoin that resisted changes very strongly. And ultimately, the core developers sort of had to make a decision, right? If mm. you... And the core developers, I think, really had to look at the situation and say, like, well, if we choose to invalidate someone's right to Bitcoin, then we are telling people what Bitcoin is. And if we decide what Bitcoin is, does Bitcoin exist? And I think the Bitcoin developers made the more elegant decision. I think, you know, Bitcoin is defined by the individual and their ability or their right to to that Bitcoin, right? And I think that the fact that that is irrevocable within Bitcoin, that there's nothing that can happen within Bitcoin for you to be disenfranchised. Mm. If that is the bedrock of the Bitcoin financial system, you can clearly state that that's not the bedrock of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. The big cryptocurrency ecosystem, again, is a, is, seems to appear to be a system in which you are constantly sort of, your money is at risk from some majority. And if in any case you end up in the minority, uh, you will have to bear some financial cost to continue on your own. I think, again, how morality gets defined in that environment, to me, becomes a lot more hard, because you're sort of saying, okay, it's okay for the like, just imagine you're the individual navigating that landscape, even as you're sort of, you know, defining it like this, you know, you're, you're sort of imagining this individual who's who has money and you're constantly sort of at risk to some political force, right? That seems like the system we were trying to escape with Bitcoin, right? So I think I become a lot more sympathetic to this idea that, you know, the reason that we chose the path of soft forks is because it was harder and uh, it was harder because, you know, you can't, you know, force people to go along with you. You have to build coalitions uh, peacefully. You have to enact change without force. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if nobody wants to use Taproot, you can't make them. They can continue mm. enjoying their rights the same way they would <laughs> if you never if you never did that, right? And I think a lot of developers found that very frustrating, right? It's easy to see why developers would want to leave that that type of system, and and maybe the, maybe we'll find when the history books are written that they did, right? And that they did largely choose to join some other system, and the results of that were, you know. They continue to build other systems that were weaker towards human rights, and you know maybe there'll be problems there. I, I can't write the end of that story. I, I all I can do is sort of say, as someone who's been here eight years, I'm increasingly sort of troubled by it and think that it seems like it's going in a weird direction. Hmm. Well, so one thing I wanted to ask you about because when I read the title of this this paper, right, against cryptocurrency, the ethical argument for Bitcoin maximalism, I almost when I read that title, I 
I was expecting something about primas because for me, (laughs) when I think about altcoins, this is the most unethical thing that you can do. And like, at least like in the 2011 to 2013 era, this was a big deal, right? Like every, every cryptocurrency that did a pre-mine was almost always dead in the water because everybody else that was like looking at it said almost immediately, what the heck? How? Why Why do you get to keep like 40%? Well, because I'm the creator. Well, then I'm not going to go on your coin. And of course, like Ethereum sort of changed everything by sort of like spinning it as, you know, like a fund f- for their developers or something. Uh, but, you know, if if what you said earlier, the most charitable case is some sort of rule by majority or rule by a market majority, which is really saying rule by the majority of the whoever owns the majority of the tokens, then, you know, a pre-mine is like much, much worse. This is like you're never going to be in the majority as somebody or like you can always be in the minority because there's somebody that owns the majority. So how would you like sort of like frame pre-mine within the framework that you have? So I agree with you that like technically like within the Bitcoin community, that is how we would explain it. But again, like Mm -hmm. kind of referring to arguments and how arguments can be somewhat weaker than we'd like them to be, even if they're like technically convincing. Right. So I think the pre-mine argument is always it's almost immediately dismissed at this point. You know, if you try to talk to someone outside the Bitcoin community about why that's a problem, because it's been such a pervasive thing that's happened in the cryptocurrency community. So I think you have to come at it from another angle. And I think the, the angle that I'm suggesting is not to use the, like the Bitcoin Bill of Rights thing again, but I think it's an interesting, <laughs> you know, case of like, what would that be, right? Like, so you're saying that in an ecosystem in which there is no known issuance mm. and there's no known money supply and there and there is no fair distribution, right? You can talk very critically about all those things. Or you can just say Bitcoin is a system where you have the right to a known money supply, you have the right to a known issuance of that money, and you have the right to a system in which, you know, that money was fairly distributed. You can start talking about that in a way that's like positive, where it positively compares to what's happening in in cryptocurrencies. And I feel like, again, like, this is a little bit of criticism of of people who are, I think, have been in the Bitcoin maximalist position is I think we've been allowed, we've allowed ourselves like, while we are right about things, that does not mean that people have to listen to our arguments, right? And mm. I think that I prefer to flip that on its head, even like the soft fork, hard forks argument. I really, in this article, tried to avoid using that language because, again, I think it comes down to, would you rather participate in a financial system where you had the right to dissent or would you rather participate in a financial system in which you always had to go along with what the majority wanted and the majority could force you at any time if you didn't want to go along with them to start a new economy or to start a new application or to start some new version of the thing that you were doing. Mm. I think most people <laughs> would choose mm. the environment with more freedom. So then I think we need to kind of reframe some of these things. And and this is why mm. I've sort of been tinkering with this rights argument, because I do think that like, you know, yourself and Alice Gladstein have been very successful in, you know, pushing this argument that that Bitcoin is a moral financial system. This is this is this is really what I think is the narrative that is cresting right now. This is why Bitcoin mm. is cool. This is why Megan mm. the Stallion is giving out Bitcoin. It, mm. They're giving out Bitcoin because Bitcoin is freedom money, because Bitcoin is this appealing countercultural movement. And they're doing that because Bitcoin aligns with freedom and values. And I don't think we've been while we have done that argument at a really high level, we've only really made that argument against fiat. 
I think mm. we, it's time to start moving that argument. And this is kind of the title, like against cryptocurrency, like you start arguing against those systems. Why are they, why do they actually provide less user rights than Bitcoin? And that's why I really like, and I, th- I hopefully people will continue this and think about it and maybe critique it. But I, the only way I can really figure it out is that the way to argue against, you know, these systems in which, you know, there is no money supply or predictable issuance is to just say in Bitcoin, you have the right to that. Mm. You know, this was what was appealing about America, right? Like, what are, what was the Bill of Rights in America? Like, is, was there something special about these things? Like, I don't, I don't know. There, there are certainly values. We all we did was codify them and then made people aware of them, right? But now I think most people have a certain reverence for those values, and and maybe we just need to celebrate these values a little bit more rather than arguing against these other negative things, right? So rather than arguing about the premines, you can just say, look, I choose to participate in a financial system in which there is a known money supply, predictable issuance. I don't have that in the fiat system. I don't have that in the crypto ecosystem. That is why I use Bitcoin. You know, I don't want to participate in a financial system where I'm coerced by the majority. That's why I don't use fiat. That is why I don't use cryptocurrency. This is why I use Bitcoin. You have the right to dissent. Majority wants to do something you don't want to do. You will always have your money, your irrevocable right to money. I think that's the argument starts to become a little bit more appealing. And I think it, it starts to become something that where, you know, you stop arguing about how many people use the centralized applications and if DAP radar, like, you know, is a <laughs> reasonable way to look at metrics, right? You know, so and, I, and you start getting to something that's more relatable to people, because, again, I think that is what you and Alex have done really well is you've you really laid the bedrock for that of, OK, Bitcoin is a financial system and it's a financial system that is right and ethical and moral, however you want to slice it, and that you should be aligned with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is aligned with you and these other systems mm-hmm. are not. And I, and I think really all I was trying to do here was extrapolate that and say, you know, I get it. I, I understand why people ignore cryptocurrencies it's easy to ignore them it's easy to pretend that they don't exist but it's they're they're going to continue to exist <laughs> like, and they're going to be around <laughs> and you know they're going to continue to be enticing to people for the same reasons that they've always been enticing to people but i think we do have better arguments these days right and i think that you know look i've seen some good counter arguments to this piece right i think i've seen you see the people who trot out oh well you can't guarantee uh, that Bitcoin is, uh, you know, never going to hard fork. There could be, you know, this situation where there's some cataclysm, you know, that'll happen, and you, you know, you can never guarantee it. But look, I mean, with any human aspiration that is significantly beneficial to us, you can never guarantee anything. You can never guarantee that democracy was going to exist. I mean, people didn't know that Abraham Lincoln was going to hold an election during a war, you know, and that democracy was going to yeah. succeed from that. So Bitcoin ultimately is just the next best human endeavor to ensure freedoms and. Maybe there is no way we can guarantee that it will be upheld forever. It doesn't make the aspiration towards it less relevant. Mm. Interesting. Well, so I have to ask you, because you are talking about sort of like against cryptocurrency and you're making sort of a more positive case for Bitcoin, say you have these rights and so on. Uh, Of course, the flip side of that is showing, I think, that these other coins do not. And explaining that, of course, can be a little bit of a headache. What's your view on Bitcoin toxicity? Because uh, that's that's something that's come up recently. And really, that's at least from my perspective, what that is all about. It's saying, okay, these other things are, you know, definitely take away your rights. And it, I, I don't know if they would necessarily frame it that way. Yeah, uh, but being very charitable. It's very charitable. <laughs> <laughs> but that's ultimately the idea is to sort of ward people away from altcoins instead of 
say, your approach, which seems to be more about attracting people to Bitcoin? I don't know about that. I mean, look, I love Bitcoin toxicity. Uh I feel like I'm Uh one of the people who like most loves Bitcoin toxicity as an idea or movement. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly something that really, for me, was really formative, right? I was Mm -hmm. critiqued and yelled at by people and was the brunt uh, for the brunt of toxicity for a while. But I think that you know, look, ultimately, if you don't have the humility to sit with somebody and understand what their claims are, you know, that's that's a personal decision on you. But yeah, look, I would say Bitcoin toxicity, I mean, you have to understand where it comes from. So, you know, I do a lot of work, you know, parsing through the Bitcoin archives and trying to develop like who the historical figures are within Bitcoin. I think when you look at Bitcoin toxicity, it really comes from what we've been talking about is that early within Bitcoin's history, it wasn't clear that Bitcoin was going to be a system that so strongly respected user rights. And it wasn't always clear that there were inherent moral hazards with some of the ways that we could develop Bitcoin, right? And I think Mm. that while other cryptocurrencies fell for those things, Bitcoin did not. So Bitcoin toxicity really comes out of, I think, a very small minority group within Bitcoin that was part of this IRC forum called Bitcoin Assets. And I think they were very strong in understanding early on that you know, the developers were within Bitcoin were an authority force. They were using their authority to, you know, impose on other people what they thought Bitcoin should be. And, you know, their reaction to that was to become very hostile to those people. And, you know, the most famous incident, I think, of that group was when they threatened to kill like one of the Bitcoin developers and put out a bounty for them. Certainly very, you know, that was a very, you know, trying time for the community. But I think what it said was, and when I look at that event in retrospect, you know, I, I look at, there was a group of people who said, I will challenge you, if you take away my rights, you have to invalidate Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin does not exist if you take away my right. And I will Mm. harass you and challenge you as much as I can because ultimately Bitcoin gives me that freedom. And if you choose to take away that freedom, then you've chosen to destroy Bitcoin. (laughs) So I think Bitcoin Mm. toxicity is the celebration of what it means to be in Bitcoin, that you can't be disenfranchised, that whatever your actions are as a human, uh, there is no one who can take it away from you. So I think, you know, viewed through that lens, right? You know, you look at what happens in the fiat system where people are debanked, like deplatformed and, you know, for all sorts of different behaviors. You know, you saw what was happening with only OnlyFans early this year. Certainly we've, we've seen this a lot with financial censorship over the years. WikiLeaks was something that happened early in Bitcoin's history. I choose to view Bitcoin toxicity as a celebration of essentially, you know, the fact that the, the technology <laughs> makes it that you can't be disenfranchised. And ultimately, I think that, Yes, it's, you know, it can be a tough thing to be on the other end of, but, you know, separate yourself from it and understand it a little bit. To me, Bitcoin toxicity is the strongest expression of that right. It's the strongest expression of how Bitcoin provides an irrevocable right to money. It's the strongest expression of the right to dissent, right? You can do you can push it to the limit. You can, within Bitcoin, celebrate your human freedoms, even when it might detest uh, or annoy other people. You can dissent. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. So I, I personally think the, the Bitcoin toxicity movement is wildly misunderstood. I think its mm. historical origins are beautiful and fascinating. And, you know, I think that the creators of it are probably some of the least uh, discussed people in the Bitcoin history. And Mircea Popescu. Yeah. We're talking about him. <laughs> yeah. R.I.P. Uh, I wrote an obituary about him for Bitcoin Magazine earlier this year, if anyone wants to check that out. But yeah, I'm actually really, uh, I'm still really interested in telling his story. I, I do think he is one of the great Bitcoiners. And I, and I do think that this idea that Bitcoin is an environment where you have the right to dissent, I think is... This, you know, heavily indebted to to his person. I don't know if it's 
I don't know if you can really say that it's his attitude or his work because <laughs> calling it <laughs> work would be a little, very charitable as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, you had a group within Bitcoin that dissented and they exist. They still endure. They still run the same code that they've run for the last 10 years. And, you know, I think that makes Bitcoin a different system than other cryptocurrencies at the end of the day. Mm. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're working on some sort of article about the origins of Bitcoin toxicity and maybe explaining it a little better than the way it's been framed by altcoiners as if it's uh, some sort of character flaw or something like that. So I, I really look forward to reading an article of that nature. Just Yeah, just working on it. There's a lot of archives down there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, and it's, uh, it's been a lot going on in this market. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to present that. Like, look, I try to brand myself these days as more of a historian than a journalist. I, that's sort mm. of something I'm aspiring to do right now is to kind of shed light on the people and the the places and the things that have shaped Bitcoin. And I almost view this as like sort of a position piece. It's just been stuff that I've been thinking about as I've been gone through, going, going through the archives. And mm. yeah, I don't know. I do, I do feel like, you know, again, going back to kind of the arguments that we can make for Bitcoin maximalism. I mean, there just only are so many, right? We can make an economic mm. argument. We can argue about how decentralized it is, uh, the network is. We can argue about the launch. But I, I really question like how many people we're going to reach there, right? I think that mm. at the end of the day, economic arguments for Bitcoin are pretty esoteric. I mean, the arguments that it's the most decentralized one are exhausting to, to be really charitable. And then the launch arguments, you know, they're good, right? I mean, maybe Bitcoin was immaculate, but maybe not, right? But whereas I think the user right arguments, I think you start to like really kind of bring in a couple different things. You start to bring in this idea that Bitcoin is a financial system. It's not just digital gold. That is, it is a technology that we use as humans to ensure our financial rights. And I think that that can be a powerful argument if we if we continue to shape it, you know, especially does because it does speak a little bit more, uh, you know, strongly to what, you know, why, why really only Bitcoin, right? Because it does feel like mm -hmm. the burden on is on us to explain that, right? And, you know, if your answer is that, well, Bitcoin is the most decentralized network, because the number of nodes and the cost of nodes is low, I mean, you know, good luck, you, you also have to explain to somebody why this entire market of other cryptocurrencies in which people are making millions of dollars uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> so I don't think that's going to be really hard to do that. Because again, look, I mean, the cryptocurrency market is this, you know, massive expanse of Cantillion insiders who are printing money left and right, giving it to their friends, getting rich, buying NFTs, wash trading those NFTs <laughs> with each other and creating this veneer that they're a cool, hip economy where money is emerging from nothing, right? Like, so, yeah, I worry a lot about what that turns into. But I think we should we should treat it with the deference that it is a thorny beast, that it's going to continue to grow. And that, you know, I, I think the long-term effects of it, I and mean, we're just starting to have that battle, right? I mm. think my biggest worry about the cryptocurrency ecosystem beyond Bitcoin is that it gets much bigger and it, and it encompasses a lot more of the financial system before you see some of the, you know, scenarios that we're talking about. Because with user rights, I mean, you don't notice that like three days in, right? Like we were talking about, there were plenty of people who critiqued communism early on communism didn't fail for like a hundred years <laughs> you know mm. so it took them taking over whole countries and whole swaths of the of the globe and imposing that system on people and if you look at what happened in you know cambodia and cuba and, and those types of places you know am i saying that the cryptocurrency is going to go in that direction i don't know but i mean it certainly starts to look like a system where it imposes on people some very strange things and i think you know i hope more this piece encourages more people to start asking questions about 
that system and and really how it functions and, and what it's trying to do. Well, so one last question I want to ask before we kind of wrap up here. But you were kind of instrumental in a lot of this stuff. I still remember seeing you at like Consensus Invest in 2017. You know, that was a whole conference full of people that were looking to launch their own altcoin. I think at the time, it was mostly ICOs. Do you regret some of the stuff that you did to sort of encourage a lot of that? Or like, how do you look at your past when you've sort of like come out on this end, sort of with this article? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what gives me a lot of empathy. And, you know, mm. I, I get frustrated with the different entrepreneurs in the industry. So, you know, Jimmy's referring to the time where I was editor in chief at Coindesk and Coindesk was a small publication of <laughs> just a few people <laughs> before it grew pretty widely. I was actually in the room where, where we asked whether Coindesk should cover Ethereum. And I actually was the one who argued that point and, and pushed that forward. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that most businesses within the cryptocurrency community, you know, and I think we have, this helps from a Bitcoin perspective, I understand as well, is that they, businesses in our arguably benefit from there being more cryptocurrencies. There's just no way to slice it. This is one of the reasons mm-hmm. why you've seen the major exchanges, you know, go the path that they have and why you see, you know, a lot of the different financial services providers, you know, the, the wallets and things like that. You know, it was just very hard to make the case from a business perspective. This is why talking about incentives, right? You talked about journalists and why has mm-hmm. there been a failure of journalism to understand Bitcoin and to cover Bitcoin. You know, I would argue that there's been an equally large failure from the entrepreneur class to understand Bitcoin mm. and to build things within Bitcoin that add value to Bitcoin. I would actually question how many Bitcoin entrepreneurs there even have been. Mm. Or, you know, I was just in a, a Bitcoin Twitter spaces with Udi Wertheimer, and I think it sort of ended with, you know, a real substantive question about like, what does it mean to build on Bitcoin, right? And I don't think we know that answer yet, right? I think that Certainly, it's uh, there's been a lot more. It's it's easier to understand why entrepreneurs do other things in other cryptocurrencies. And it's a lot easier, right? I mean, you have the ability to print money, issue money, and then use that to subsidize your user growth. <laughs> so <laughs> if you have the choice between doing that and driving value to a finite 21 million UTXO sets and then increasing the value of it for humanity, <laughs> it's going to be a lot more appealing to do the cryptocurrency thing. So again, I feel badly about it because I feel like I could have been in a position then to know more. I think that I certainly have done my best over the years to continue to like try to hold myself to a higher standard in light of mm. some of those past mistakes. You know, I, I'm not sure I would have made any different decisions in retrospect, though I think now that the intellectual reasons for which they were made were pretty suspect. Mm. But, you know, I think that, you know, you have to understand that, you know, there was just a lot of and there was this whole veneer that the cryptocurrencies were new and interesting, right? And then I think we don't we didn't know then what we knew now. And if you look at that and apply that to people like Vitalik and Ethereum and, and the people who have built other cryptocurrencies, you know, maybe they know now more than they did then and maybe they wouldn't have made the same decisions and you know, ultimately we'll see, right? I think what's interesting is how people get trapped in those systems and then they don't make decisions to to leave those systems, right? So I mean I guess the best thing that I can say for myself is that I chose to leave that system because I was dissatisfied with it and I chose to do something else. I don't think that makes that experience something that I regret. It's always going to be some part of me like having done that. You know, certainly Coindesk continues now with the same value proposition that I helped establish, which is, you know, to cover the, you know, larger cryptocurrency industry. Uh, And yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for uh, for that because I think I could definitely tell there's some inner 
wrestling that you've definitely done uh, with respect to all of this stuff. And uh, well, I think you, you have know, to face it, right? I mean, I think the, the most thing that I can do is I try to get other people to to face up to it as well, right? I mean, mm. I, there's a lot of other entrepreneurs or people from that era who are like, you know, they see me now and they're like, oh, what are you doing? And I'm, you know, I sort of always ask them like, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, what's, what is your goal? Is like, your, is your goal to be, you know, the next Mike Novogratz type investor? Like what, uh-huh. you know, what is, what are you putting forward? Right. So yeah, I think it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, you get into sort of like who's done what and who's a good Bitcoiner. I, I try to let the work speak for itself and just to continue doing good work. And I still want to do good work for Bitcoin. And I think, you know, I would hope to encourage other people to go down that path, right? It is it is tough to provide work to Bitcoin. It's very demanding. And I think ultimately that's what makes it rewarding, though. Mm. I think the truer words have never been said about Bitcoin and like the difficulty of working for it. It really does have a much higher bar than all of this other stuff. Well, thank you for having been here. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Sure. I'm on Twitter uh, at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore contributor over at Forbes. Uh, you can check out my articles there. The most recent one is Against Cryptocurrency, the Ethical Argument for Bitcoin Maximalism. Also uh, contribute my historical research to Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, so you can find my work there. And of course, also looking for great developer projects. I do work with the Kraken Cryptocurrency Exchange uh, to fund uh, Bitcoin projects and exciting things that are going on in the open source space. So happy to reach out to anybody who's doing interesting work there. All right. Well, thank you, Pete. That was awesome. Thanks for having me, man. Unchained Capital is the sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Pete can be found at at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore and BitcoinMagazine.com. Until next time, Fiat the Linda asked.